Welcome to Curiosity Taught the Cat, the podcast where we take animals you see every day, animals you've heard of, and animals you didn't know existed, and break them down in a single episode. Our goal as animal lovers is to spread knowledge and awareness about the creatures we share this floating rock with. We hope you learn something new. Hello and welcome to Curiosity Taught the Cat. I'm Jack. I'm Julia. So today we're doing things a little bit differently uh, because of the big gap that we took due to like scheduling conflicts and uh, vacation, sickness, whatever you may have it. So today we're actually going to do a double episode uh, to help catch up. And one of the other reasons is because these next two animals, we didn't get a ton of information on. There's not a ton of information out there. So on their own, they would be relatively quick. But So we're going to do a double episode today. So today we are going to be talking about the Yakushin horse and the Dumbo octopus. So some other names that we have for the Yakushin horse is the Yakut horse, the Yakut pony, and it is also nicknamed the long rider. And it is called the Yakushin horse because of where it's found. It is found in a region of Russia called Yakusha, as well as there is a tribe there, the Yakushin tribe. Yeah, and so this area in Russia is found in uh, Siberia. So when most people think Siberia, you think uh, cold place. That's the really cold part of Russia. And since it is so cold in the area that they are found, uh, their physical characteristics are going to really uh, embody that. So as for color, uh, they're described as usually being like a bay, a gray, or a grayish brown, uh, usually. Uh, that's usually the kind of colors you'll see them in. Uh, what makes them so... Uh, unique though I think would be like their size uh, because when most people think horses you think of like a, a bigger creature at least um, where you know at the shoulder it's usually about as tall as a man sort of thing but uh, Yakushin horses in uh, like Julia mentioned earlier one of the nicknames for them is a pony uh, is because they are not very tall um, uh, for adults they're 14.3 hands or four and a half feet at the shoulder so they are not very tall uh, and then average uh, weight is about 992 pounds. So even though they are short, they are very stocky. They are wide horses. They are really good for uh, long hauls and um, carrying things. So like Jack just mentioned, uh, they are made for the cold climate that they're found in. In the area that they are at, the temperature can range from almost negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and usually the winter is about eight months long, which is why they have to be so large because of their weight. They are thick. They have thick coats. Uh, they're very low to the ground. So when you look at them, they are very stocky creatures because of how cold it gets in that area. And because the temperatures are so, the temperature range is so vast between these summer and winter months, during the short summer months that they have, Yakushin horses lose almost 20% of their body weight and will start accumulating fat, and that fat is usually around like 77 pounds total by the time they've fully accumulated it. And just talking about their feet real quick, because this is going to help them in another area, they have very short and wide feet. 
And this is because, like we said, they are used to long travel, so that helps them in their travels. But it is also used to help dig for the food that they eat. So when snow accumulates and it gets really thick, they use these big wide hooves to kind of dig through to find the grass and vegetation underneath. If you'll remember back to the caribou episode, that's what it's similar to, where they use their hooves almost like shovels. And another interesting adaptation that the Yakutian horses have gained because of the harsh winter, uh, kind of hotter summer uh, climate that they're in is that during the winter months, their metabolic rate drops. So everything that they do during the winter is to conserve as much body heat as possible, conserve as much energy as possible uh, since the winter is so cold and it's harder to find food. So along with the metabolic rate dropping, uh, their breathing will drop from 20 breaths per minute to 10 to 12 breaths per minute during the winter. And if you time this out, that's, that's not a lot of breaths, especially if you're doing a lot of activity. And not only will their uh, metabolic rate and breathing decrease, the amount that they urinate and the amount that they defecate also drops. So this is all to conserve as much body heat as possible, conserve as much energy as possible. And to avoid frostbite during these harsh winters, they can actually reduce the amount of blood that circulates through their body. And this helps kind of help with like the stress responses and the blood coagulation and it will all slow down just once again to conserve all this energy to keep them as warm as possible. And I kind of mentioned their hair earlier, but this hair can actually reach over three inches in length and that is a very densely compact hair. Um, Kind of think almost, you know, like a sheep's wool. It's almost like that. It's so dense. And another thing I thought was really interesting when looking at all these traits that they've adapted to live in these harsh cold is uh, the idea of convergent evolution. And we kind of talked about this back in the Glyptodon episode, I believe, where we talked about the Glyptodon was very similar to the Ankylosaur, which was a dinosaur and the Glyptodon was a mammal. Well, the Yakutian horse has convergent evolution, or we believe has convergent evolution, with woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos, where they had to uh, adapt this really tough, thick fur and uh, survive these really harsh winters. Now, we already kind of said that we don't know a lot of information about the Yakutian horse. And one of the things that we know pretty much nothing about is their mating rituals, courtships, uh, giving birth to the children. We don't know anything about this really, Uh, but we can assume that it is similar to other pony species because they are a smaller horse. The only thing that uh, we could actually find about any kind of mating, um, it was an older study uh, back in the uh, 1970s, and it said that the percentage of mares in the herds, mares being females able to give birth, was about 50% of them. And then the actual birth rate of these mares was around 70% with an overall mortality rate of the uh, babies being only 2.5%. So when you actually think about this, that's pretty good breeding. Um, You know, giving 70% and only a uh, 2.5% of dead babies, that's kind of how they've kept their numbers strong this whole time. And we uh, we haven't really talked about it much, but it kind of makes sense because the Yakutian horse doesn't really have a lot of predators. Given the area that it's in, there's not going to be a, lar- a lot of large predators in the area. And also, the Yakutian horse is so important to the Yakutia tribe or the Yakut tribe that they really wouldn't let anything happen to them. Where any time a Yakut horse is probably dying, it's probably going to be from natural causes 
or it's going to be because the tribe needs whether it be the meat, the fur. So they aren't really dying randomly to random things. And then as for their population numbers, uh, technically by the IUCN, they're not evaluated. Uh, so we have they haven't really put much research and um, uh, thought and money behind it. So we're not really sure. Uh, we do know that their numbers are probably in the hundreds of thousands with no current major threats to the species. So they're, they're not really at risk right now. Um, then as for threats, uh, big one most people would acknowledge is probably climate change. Um, it can really mess with creatures that are strongly adapted to a specific environment uh, if that environment, if the climate of that environment got turned on its head. So that's one big one. Uh, so another smaller threat is illegal horse meat trades. Uh, not, there's not a lot of places in the world that still eat horse meat, but it still does happen. Uh, and there's usually uh, illegal hunting and uh, trading that goes on for that. And just some fun facts about these uh, Yakushan horses real quick is that it would take almost a thousand years to attain the level of hardiness that they have currently. Um, but the Yakushan horse is pretty newly discovered by us, and it's only been around for about 800 years. And they've adapted so quickly because, like we mentioned earlier, it is such a harsh climate with these varying degrees of cold and warm weather. They were almost forced to and able to survive. I also wouldn't be surprised. I didn't see any information on it, but thinking about it now, I also wouldn't be surprised because of how uh, tight-knit these horses are to the Yakut tribe. I wouldn't be surprised if there was also selective breeding going on because, you know, other times animals adapted on their own. Any evolution that happened was on their own. But because these horses were so important to this tribe, the tribe might have played a hand in getting the certain traits that they needed quicker. And I kind of touched on this earlier when I talked about the convergent evolution, uh, but the, the shaggy hair of the Yakushan horse is very primitive. Uh, what we mean by that is... It's probably the same type of hair that woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos possessed. So, like we said, that convergent evolution. So, it's not like it's uh, similar, but um, it's for the environment, but that these are probably almost the exact same kind of hairs that they had. Another fun fact uh, that we learned is that lactating mares um, in an experimental farm at the UQ Institute of Agriculture produced between 2,600 and 3,800 pounds of marketable milk in just a six-month time period. And just kind of wrapped up uh, the facts that we have about them. Um, a study was concluded that the uh, present Yakushan horses were developed sometime between the 13th and 15th century after the Yakut people mited into the uh, Siberia area where we find the horses now. And it is, uh, there's a common belief that the Yakushan horses are just descendants of the native wild horses that were in that area. Uh, but this is not true. The horses that are there now are the ones that the Yakut people actually brought over all this time ago. And it's the descendants of those horses. And I've mentioned a couple times how important the horse is to the Yakut tribe. Um, but so they don't really rely on them for survival as much anymore. And even though the population is decreasing a little bit with the horses, um, they are still revered culturally and spiritually. Um, and they're celebrated in a bunch of different ceremonies and festivals and whatnot because of how important the horses have been to that tribe. And that about wraps up everything we have on the Yakushan horse. And so I guess we'll go ahead and pivot on over to the Dumbo octopus and I'll let Julia take over. Yeah, so the Dumbo octopus, 
Um, just a quick fun fact is it was named after, yes, Disney's Dumbo the Elephant. And we'll t- explain why later when we talk about what it looks like. Uh, but another fun nickname that we have for it is the Umbrella Octopus. And I guess Umbrella Octopus would be the more general term because there are multiple species of Umbrella octo- Octopi. I also saw actually that another plural form of octopus was Octopodes, which I thought was really interesting. Um, anyway, but so there, there are a lot of very similar um octopus and actually if you remember when we did the vampire squid uh they have some similarities with the vampire squid as well and it's actually really easy uh where this uh, octopus is found it's found in any warm water basically um so we have seen them in areas such as new zealand or australia um to california and oregon as well as the philippines and new guinea so like Julia said, they're found in any warm water, basically, but they are deep ocean creatures. Uh, they are found as far down as 9,800 to 13,000 feet. Uh, they are actually the uh, furthest or the deepest living of all octopus species. And the deepest one that has ever been found was 23,000 feet below sea level. So these octopi they look kind of silly i'm gonna say it already you know they are mentioned uh they're called the dumbo octopus and that's because they have these almost ear-like flaps on the outside of them Um, but these are actually what help them move through the water they're their little propellers Um, and they are also very round looking um think like upside down teacup almost they are very round and oval shape um, and they can have multiple different colors but because they're deep sea creatures it's a lot of like translucent yellow, browns, pinks, those kind of colors. And they are also able to flush color. So they're not necessarily able to like completely change color from like yellow to brown. But if it, if a Dumbo octopus is like naturally yellow, it may flush brown for like a second or two, but it won't like, st- it can't stay that color. And then as for size, uh, they are not big. They are, they are tiny little guys. Uh, most species are between uh, 8 and 12 inches. So biggest on average they get is about a foot. Um, then as for the largest Dumbo octopus that was ever found, it was uh, over 6 feet uh, and weighed 13 pounds. So it was huge. As for the propor- the proportions of that Dumbo octopus, we can't tell you. We haven't seen pictures. We just know how big it was. So I don't know if the it, the length got six feet. That meant that its head was also like huge compared to uh, normal. Um, but we just know lengthwise it was over six feet. And another appearance of them that kind of looks silly on them again is they don't have very long tentacles. Um, and this is because I mentioned earlier, they move with the little flaps on their head um, and they kind of kind of just paddle along with them while they move slowly because they are not a very fast octopus as well. While traditionally other octopi will use propulsion and they'll use your, their legs to do short bursts and then kind of drift a little bit. And then one of the reasons that they are so slow moving is also because they don't really have to do a lot to get their food. Uh, Their food consists of pelagic invertebrates, which are like the really tiny, basically, creatures that float above the seafloor. They include uh, copepods, isopods, bristleworms, and amphipods. These are not fast moving creatures, so the Dumbo octopus doesn't necessarily have to be that fast in order to get its food. And since it's so deep in the ocean, it doesn't have a lot of predators. Um, but the ones that we can find from Dumbo octopus that are kind of further up are uh, diving fish, uh, like tunas, as well as sharks and dolphins and other larger cephalopods. 
Now, when it comes to the actual mating of these octopi, um, female necropsids have shown that the eggs um, in her in her stomach basically means that they can breed all year round. And the way that they do this is that males basically will just pass little pockets of semen to the female and she will take them and basically just inseminate herself that way. So yeah, because the male gives the female a little uh, packet of sperm, uh, it is believed that the female can basically uh, fertilize any of her eggs at any given point because she just constantly holds on to this packet of sperm. And that's why there's different stages of maturation in the in the female octopus. So uh, whenever time comes, she just lays an egg on the seafloor, hides it under a rock or shell, and moves on and can do this throughout the entire year. And if the timing was right, the female Dumbo octopus can actually lay up to 200,000 eggs at a given time. Then as for when the eggs hatch, we actually don't have a ton of information. Uh, based on, you know, uh, I'll say like a uh, couch uh, marine biologist sort of thing going on here. Uh, it's probably going to be similar to when we talked about the vampire squid, where the female kind of stuck around and made sure that the eggs hatched. But once they hatched, it was kind of like, okay, good, you're good to go. Uh, because there's enough small um, creatures around that they can eat and they already are able to move as soon as they hatch. So that's probably most likely what goes on. And as far as communication, you know, it's it's hard to communicate, uh, like we would assume, vocally underwater. Um, but like we mentioned earlier, they can flush their color. And they use this. They flush colors to communicate with other octopuses as well as uh, camouflage if need be. As for population size, uh, we don't have a ton of information about that as well. Uh, they have currently not been evaluated by the IUCN, so we're not exactly sure. Um, but as for threats, since they are found so deep in the ocean, there's not going to be a lot of threats. Um, a lot of uh, fishing won't happen a ton that deep, so they won't get caught up in like fishing. Um, and then the only threats would be like the predators. But like we said, there's not a ton unless there's diving creatures. Just a quick fun fact about the uh, Dumbo octopus is that it doesn't have an ink sac. Um, and this is because it is so deep in the ocean and it doesn't have a lot of predators that it didn't really need it at all. Um, so there's really no point to having an ink sac, so it didn't really evolve one. And then as you'll see with a lot of sea creatures is that the Dumbo octopus is also neutrally buoyant. Uh, what that means is that the Dumbo octopus can go any direction with minimal resistance or at least similar resistance in any direction so going up and going down it sees no difference to it so that's all we have on the uh, dumbo octopus like we said this is our little double episode with the yukushin horse as well uh, but thanks for listening and tune in for the next one we are going to talk about the japanese spider crab and as always don't forget to follow us on all of our socials uh, and also check out our patreon that we've created uh, I will put a link to our link tree in the description for the episode so you can get one link that takes you to all of those links.
I'd also like to thank my friend, the musical artist known as Shades, for creating this amazing intro and outro for this podcast. I highly recommend checking out his other work.